Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, A Thunderstorm by Archibald Lampman, uh, probably first published in a collection of his from 1899 um, called The Poems of Archibald Lampman. And uh, I came across this in a very strange way. I do not remember how I came across. Oh, I do. One of my students, he, he found it and he found another one. And I'm very dubious of poems, <laughs> even though I do a lot of them and I enjoy a lot of poems. I'm like, I don't know. We'll read it and see how it is. And I was very surprised by how great this poem is. I think it's pretty interesting anyways. And yet, I'm not a big nature poem fan. I like uh, zombies and werewolves and robots. Um, this has none of those. Uh, I think uh, well, I suggested this to you. Uh, what did you think it, of it? I, uh, <laughs> well, I'll throw the gauntlet down right now. Um, I thought it was of some interest as a nature poem, but I think it's of a lot more interest if one thinks of it as not merely a nature poem. Mm. You know, it's not that long, Jesse, and since it is by a Canadian, and my accent is certainly not going to be anything like Lampman's, um, <laughs> would you care to read it sure. for us? Sure, it's a sonnet, Great. so it's only uh, 14 lines. Um, I will read it for us. A Thunderstorm by Archibald Lampman. A moment the wild swallows like a flight of wither gust-caught leaves, serenely high, toss in the windrack up the muttering sky. The leaves hang still. Above the weird twilight, the hurrying centers of the storm unite, and spreading with huge trunk and rolling fringe, each wheeled upon its own tremendous hinge, tower darkening on. And now... From heaven's height, with the long roar of elm trees swept and swayed, and pelted waters on the vanished plain, plunges the blast. Behind the wild white flash that splits abroad the peeling thunder crash, over bleared fields and gardens disarrayed, column on column comes the drenching rain. Well... Um, I think it's a good poem. It is. Uh, I mean, sonically, it's sonically, certainly a good poem. Absolutely. That's, that's the first pass, right? The first pass is just the sound. Yep. Yep. So, um, as a sonnet, it, well, you know, bef before we even look at the technicalities, you said you're dubious about poems. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know what you mean by dubious, but apparently this one got through your dubiety filter. So I would like to ask, um, what did you mean by dubious and uh, how come this one met your minimum standard I got past the filter? Yeah, I, I'm dubious about a, a, almost every story, right? So if I haven't heard of some author and somebody 
says, what? You should read this. You like books. I'm like, yeah, I probably won't. I'll probably hate it. I'm a very slow reader, you know, so it takes me a lot of time to read something. And if it's not going to be amazing and I haven't uh, got evidence that it's going to be amazing, I, I'm like, I probably I probably won't read it just because I, I, it takes me a long uh, time, right? And, so by dubious, you mean reluctant. You don't want to commit. Yeah. I, and and the thing is, is I, I, I have enthusiasms, right? But um, I've never heard of this guy, Archibald Lampman. And I've been around on this earth orbiting for 45 years or so. So how come I haven't heard of him if he's, if he's supposed to be good? Um, well, sometimes there are people who just don't have champions and representatives that you know, make it through the, the noise. And I think that might be the case here. I've read three of his poems. That's it. Um, and all three of them have been amazing. And this one um, is the most normally accessible, I think, for people who, whatever the, I imagine the, the audience for poems is. It's a nature poem describing a thunderstorm. And... It has some amazing juxtaposition and some astounding, truly astounding uh, ambivalences that made me, like, it shook me. I'm like, wow, where did this poem come from? How'd you find this, hmm. kid? <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm torn. There's something I wanted to say, but I want to know what you mean by ambivalences. Oh, um, I really need to get into the sentences and the lines to explain. Well, let, me, let me suggest this then. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to um, to offer a a reason that you might not have heard of this fellow previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, my reason for not having heard of him previously is he's called the Canadian Keats and, you know, United States people don't care. Right. Um, so my teachers never bothered to tell me anything about the Canadian Keats. Uh, I thought the greatest poet in the history of Canada was uh, Cohen. Um, <laughs> so uh, but uh, I, there are two things that I think uh, come out of this that, I, that I'd like to reread the poem. Mm -hmm. Um and point out two things beforehand so that we can listen to the poem. Um, one of the reasons you may not have heard about this guy is that people read him wrong. Maybe. I took a look at some analysis. Yes, Canadians. I took a look at some of the analyses online. Uh, people turn in school essays about him, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's quite, quite famous. Uh, he's considered part of the Canadian canon. And one of the things that I found stunning is that many of the analyses claim that this is a gorgeous word portrait of a thunderstorm that passes. No, and that's frankly not, not true. Yeah, that thunderstorm doesn't pass. That's some strange romantic idea about how there's a storm and then at the end there's light and rainbows. And that's not this poem. So one of the reasons I think you may not have heard about this guy is that apparently a, a truism about some of his work is a falsism. Mm. So I think that'll become clear on a rereading. The second thing is this. 
it is technically subtly challenging. It's not conspicuously challenging, Mm -hmm. but it is, in fact, challenging subtly. Now, the rhyme scheme is it starts out A-B-B-A, and it would be quite common in a Spencerian sonnet to go A-B-B-A, C-D-D-C, E-F-F-E, and then Sorry, that would be Shakespearean GG. With Spencerian sonnet, it might go A, B, B, A, uh, C, D, D, C, E, F, G, E, F, G. Right? Now, that last, the sextet, E, F, G, E, F, G, this is like a Spencerian sonnet. It has two quatrains, two, right? And then a sextet. But And I'll try to read it so that the rhyme words are more prominent in one's ears. It doesn't go A, B, B, A, C, D, D, C. It picks up the A rhyme from the first quatrain in the second. It goes A, B, B, A, A, C, C, A. And then instead of going E, F, G, E, F, G, it goes, it doesn't need to start with that far back because it only has one, it has one fewer rhyming sounds. Um, It goes um, D E F. It doesn't go D E F D E F. It goes D E F F D E. So that the D E in lines one and two of the sextet rhyme with the D E in lines five and six of the sex, sextet. Sextet. So everything rhymes, mm-hmm. but it's more densely rhyming between the two quatrains, and it's as if there's sort of a a misstep. And you've got to recover the sense of rhyme in the sestet. It's it's really quite a subtly challenging uh, sonnet to listen to because it 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 kind of violates one's normal expectations of the sonnet in two different ways. And I think because it may be sort of challenging, people have just said, "Oh, I know what it's about. It's a thunderstorm and it passes." And so they they get it wrong. And I think that getting it right makes it a better poem, which you obviously liked. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it again, but sort of more emphasizing the uh, the rhyme words. And while I do, if you would look for some of those ambivalences at the sentence level, I would love to have you then take off on that stuff. Sure. Is that okay? Yep. A moment the wild swallows like a flight of withered gust-caught leaves serenely high, toss in the wind rack up the muttering sky, the leaves hang still above the weird twilight, the hurrying centers of the storm unite, and spreading with huge trunk and rolling fringe, each wheeled upon its own tremendous hinge, tower darkening on and now from heaven's height, with the long roar of elm trees swept and swayed and pelted waters on the vanished plain plunges the blast behind the wild white flash that splits abroad abroad the peeling thunder crash over bleared fields and gardens disarrayed column on column comes the drenching rain mm-hmm. to me this is a this is the thunderstorm just beginning to become visible in the horizon and then comes on over us. We hear the crash and then the poem leaves us 
while we've got the drenching rain in column on column. You know, we've got the hurrying centers of those two wheeling cloud thunderclouds, thunderheads, and they've been swept up. They've become elm trees, and now they are columns pouring down on us, drenching us. Um, I, what do you do now? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a thunderstorm that it puts us in a world of thunderstorm. There is no end to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I find uh, there's some really interesting techniques i've developed over i think they're interesting i use them in with my students when we're doing poems is is to pay attention to to direction that you're given so there's a great poem by hp lovecraft i, I say great it's it's just a, a poem it's by hp lovecraft but i <laughs> i love it because it tells you where you're looking as you descend the columns right the columns of the poem you can see visually where the eye of the poem is is focusing and often what i find is stanzas do this job they give you an image and then the next one is a a different image here there's a, a a really interesting break for me which is generally in a sonnet i find the first uh stanza ends with a punctuation point and then the second one begins a new sentence and a new image here that's not the case they are brought together um the the punctuation is not it's twice not three times not at the uh, end of a line but in the middle and in thinking about how we listen to poems as much as we read them on the page you have to wonder and i noticed the way you read it you again are focusing on the end of the line and yet the punctuations can be right in the middle so in trying to understand what's going on i am always like okay a sentence is a is a little story it's a little picture it's a little something that i need to understand and the first sentence of this one it threw me it threw me so hard i'm like i don't know what's going on because I don't know which word is a noun and which word is an adjective and which word is a verb. And the second sentence threw me again. I was like, I, I, I know how to read poems. I get on that horse and I ride it the way I always written things. But here in this metaphor I'm creating right now, I was thrown from this poem twice in the first two sentences. And I don't, I don't have that experience anymore, right? I get poems now. I'm, I teach them. I just want to make sure, what, what do you think are the first two sentences? So the just first two sentences are, A moment the wild swallows like a flight of withered gust-caught leaves, serenely high, toss in the wind rack up the muttering sky. That's sentence number one. Sentence number two, the leaves hang still. Okay. So. Um, the reason I ask is that it is not at all clear to me that what happens in the first three lines from a moment to uh, muttering sky, although that ends with a period, it's not clear to me that that's a sentence. It, 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 it's so strange, a sentence. So I just want to read you through my thought process on what was going on here. So um, a moment the wild swallows like a flight of withered gust-caught leaves. Okay, so that's the f- for, to the first punctuation, which is a comma. Okay, so I'm thinking um, it's a moment is a noun, <laughs> and wild is an adjective, and swallows is a noun. 
so that there were wild swallows, as in the kind of bird. And yet, I think it's not a. I think that's not the only way to read it. I think that you can read it as a moment, a noun, the wild swallows, as in the wild is a noun, and swallows is a verb, like a flight of withered, gust-caught leaves. Now, the, the word flight goes with the word swallows in that if they're birds, you can see a flight of swallows. Right. And they are like a flight of withered, gust-caught leaves. So the birds are moving like uh, uh, leaves in a, you know, pattern of leaves flying in the air from wind, just being blowing in the wind. And then serenely high. How high? Very high. Toss <laughs> in the wind rack up the muttering sky. So I, I, I want to talk about this H.P. Lovecraft poem for a moment. It's called The House. And as you read the poem, you get a, a description of the house from top to bottom. It starts above the house and it directs you to look up into the sky. The next part talks about the, the eaves, and the next part talks about the upper windows, and the next part talks about... So you're sort of following the dripping down of, you know, the eldritchness of the house. And eventually you end up in the walk, right, the front as you approach. So it's like somebody is walking down the street, and they saw this house, and they looked above it, and then they scan slowly down, as one does, right? You know, looking down and descending. And that's what I'm seeing here. A moment the wild swallows, like a flight of withered gust-caught leaves, serenely high. So I'm seeing some leaves up in the air, thrown up. Toss. Now that is verb, I think. In the wind rack. Now, wind rack's relatively uncommon word. Um... It's, in fact, it's not in the OED. It's 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 interesting because I think it could be made up here, but um, a rack is uh, it's related to the word rain. It's also torture, and wind torture is is what I took it to mainly mean. Toss in the wind rack up the muttering sky. And so we've got some personification here. But if you're reading that first sentence very casually. As I was, I guess, the first time I read it. I got the next sentence, and I was like, what the hell's going on? I don't know what this means. The leaves hang still. So I got the impression from the first sentence that we're in the middle of a uh, autumn, fall thunderstorm. And yet... Reading the leaves hang still, I thought, wait a second, are they still on the tree? Or are they still hanging in the air? And wait a second, they're not even leaves. They're swallows. <laughs> so a moment the wild swallows, like a flight of withered gust-caught leaves, serenely high, toss in the wind rack up the muttering sky. It, I, I've just become disoriented is what's happening in this first sentence after seeing the second sentence. But then the word still is a very interesting word. It's a contronym. It, so the water is still means the water's not moving. The water is still running. It means it's continuing. So immediately I'm confronted with 
one interpretation and I'm disoriented. And then the other interpretation is disoriented. And I found that that was true throughout the poem. This kind of strange ambivalence between what I'm perceiving and what I'm also perceiving. It's like one of those images where it's a, a rabbit or a duck, right? You can s switch between I see. those I, two. I think, I think the word you mean is ambiguity. Yes. Yes, ambivalence is, is different emotions. You know, I love and I hate my parents. Some, that's ambivalence. Ambiguity is plurisignification. Right. I, I, that's what you're after here. And I agree. Well, but I'm still not sure that that's a chat, that that's a sentence. I take a look at the word toss mm -hmm. in that first, you know, that segment that goes up to the first period. Mm -hmm. um, toss, um, given the morphology of English, toss would be a verb for a plural noun. Right. They toss the ball among themselves. Um, what is the plural noun that is that's being tossed? The only plural nouns that we see are swallows. And of course, if it's a verb, then it's not a noun and leaves, which um, could also be a verb or a noun. Right. Like a flight of withered gust caught leaves. Right. The flight leaves. They go away. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm 100% with you here. The, the words have multiple meanings again and again and again. But it's not clear to me that it is possible to construe those first three lines as a grammatically correct sentence. Uh, one of my I mean, you've quoted Lovecraft and I think aptly. One of my all-time favorite sentences is one that took me a while to memorize as I was standing by the urinal in the graduate library, uh, in the bathroom of the graduate library. And I'm glad that I, you know, needed the time because it was a hard sentence to memorize. And the sentence was, I can't, I feel more like I did when I came in here than I do now. <laughs> right? It's an impossible sentence. I feel more like I did when I came in here than I do now. The thing about the sentence and the reason I love it so much is as you go from any given word to the next word, it's grammatically correct. Mm -hmm. There are no grammatical errors. But when you get the whole sentence done, it doesn't make any sense as a sentence at all. And I think that's part of what's going on here. I think that the grammar in that first three lines I, uh, the reason I'm resisting calling it a sentence is I think that one of the greatnesses of this poem is its plurisignification, is the fact that so many things have multiple meanings, and even the grammatical structure has more than one meaning, no one of which is absolutely stable. Just the way the rhyme scheme looks like we're used to seeing in a Spenserian sonnet, but it's not. It works out. But it only works out in this weird way where the, the first two lines of the sestet rhyme with the last two lines. But that's not how it's supposed to be. And it doesn't feel right. And yet it kind of does because you are getting a rhyme. And I think in those first three lines, I, I sympathize with you calling it a sentence. But I think it's not. It just sort of feels <laughs> it like has the one. form of a sentence. It has a period at the end and a capital at the beginning, right? In that's, writing, that's, yes. yes. In writing, yes, but not necessarily in the grammar. I agree. Uh, I want to. I want to def also defend my use of the word ambivalent rather than uh, uh, ambiguous. And the reason is, when I read this the first time, I'm like, it could be this, it could be that, and. 
it's not that I'm undecided on it. It's that it can mean this. It can mean that. And actually, that's not the right word. Ambivalent is not the so right word. Wants, it's multivalent. Multivalent. That I would that's not have. the one that I we would need. not have raised the question. The, the thing yeah. is, is it starts off so that I'm I'm just continuing reading the sentence, and then I suddenly don't know what's going on. That disorientation yep. is actually, I think, a function of his intention. That is, he is making us experience the disorientation of a thunderstorm. And that that is continuous throughout. So getting past the first two sentences, um, by the way, um, I think we should come back. At, maybe I'll just do it now. A moment and uh, still, this is almost like a photograph is also a way of thinking of it. Seeing those leaves hanging in the air. If, if this poem was to describe that moment, the leaves are still hanging in the air, right? The, this is unless, the moment. Unless there are no leaves at all. That's exactly right. This is the moment. Well, there, there are definitely leaves. At some, <laughs> no, because well, it's, it's a simile. A moment yes. like a flight of withered, gust-caught leaves. Indeed. But there is definitely a possibility for leaves in one interpretation because the second sentence, the leaves hang still, unless you think leaves can only mean uh, verb. <laughs> I think there are at least some leaves in this because there's some trees, right? So Yes, but those aren't in the air necessarily. Indeed. I mean, I, yeah. indeed. So we've got this image possibly of at least one interpretation is you see something hanging in the air. And it could be that this is not set in fall. One one way of of uh, what what we normally see in a poem is is an author trying to give you a particular image. Here he's he's absolutely not giving you one particular image. He's giving you imagery in uh, plurality, right? A multivalence of <laughs> if that is a noun, multivalence of of imagery. So the next the next time that happens to me is when we talk about the huge trunk and rolling fringe, each wheeling upon its own tremendous hinge. I'm not sure if this is multiple storm uh, cumulus, cumulonimbus clouds coming in, or if this is uh, the trees that are reacting to the movement of the air. I'm thinking it's both. I, I sure, and I, I can see it as both. I I, I I see lots of multivalence in this, uh, and I think also to borrow Philip Wheelwright's term, plurisignificance. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the wind rack does remind us of torture. Yes. At the same time that it reminds us of the parallel lines that we see in cirrus clouds mm -hmm. or that we see in the, the wake of a rake. Um, again and again, the word weird above the weird twilight, mm. the word weird um, can certainly mean odd, unusual. You might want to take it as ominous. But in fact, etymologically, it comes from the old English word meaning fate. And it seems to me that this thunderstorm, which ends with us having column on column of drenching rain all around us. Mm -hmm. This is a poem in part about the human condition, not about a particular view of a particular thunderstorm. The, the second line has that word serenely high. Mm -hmm. So I looked up serenely. I mean, because 
I've been out in thunderstorms in in the forest, and I have in fact seen from from a an opening in the forest, a dale, um, that you can see the 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 the, the clouds moving by you can see them in the sky you can see the rain hanging from under them at, at, at a distance as if perhaps they formed the the trunk of the overspreading tree of foliage mm-hmm. above and yet the leaves right there are motionless yeah as the barometer drops right so the leaves hang still i felt that but I also remember that still is the opposite of quick. It means dead, right? And these are gust-caught leaves. Those leaves would have been leaves from the fall. But in fact, the thunderstorm season is not the fall, right? So um, it's it's late spring through early fall is when thunderstorms are most frequent. So this is the cycle of life, and it's tormenting. The word serene, it turns out, has among its other meanings— a light fall of moisture or fine rain after sunset, mm. right? It, it, and in fact, it's, it's cognate with a number of other things, including the word serum, right? It's this light, light bit of moisture coming down. So first we see the serenely high that just, you know, uh, missed in the, in the distance. Then after the weird twilight that is, of course, all of us going through life on our way from birth to death, if you like, we go and when we see it, we can't really see it in the penultimate line. The crash, the thunder crash is over bleared fields. Mm. Bleared, what is bleared? And it turns out that blear, you know, we're all used to the expression, he was bleary eyed. Mm -hmm. Turns out that blear actually means the water that films over eyes. So we can't see the world clearly because it's us. And because that's the nature of the world. And the less we can see, the more likely we are to be drenched column after column. I don't think this is just a nature poem. I think the question is, is it a lyric? That is, is it just somebody saying, this is how I am feeling? Or is it a story? Is it someone telling us, look, this is what the world is like. Who are we in this story? Who is the speaker? It's it's amazing. I want to do those last two sentences before we wrap this up. With the long roar of elm trees. Oh, that's not where it starts. It That's the new stanza. <laughs> um, right. And now from heaven's height, with the long roar of elm trees swept and swayed. The, so the trees are roaring. And pelted waters on the vanished plain. Again, that word, vanished. Very interesting plunges the blast now that could be a lightning strike it could be the sound of of the storm but then the next line the next sentence i should say behind the wild white flash that to me could be that weird twilight is not stars but rather the lightning right it's strange lights in the sky Behind that wild white flash that splits abroad the peeling thunder crash. So we've actually got a thunder crash coming first and then the lightning strike. So this is total disorientation, right? We've got either a series of lightning strikes or lightning, anyways, lightning sound, and, <laughs> lightning, and then the thunder from it. 
over the bleared fields and gardens disarrayed. Column on column comes the drenching rain. What I'm seeing in the first stanza is mostly this up, looking up, up at the thunderstorm. And now the final imagery is more down towards those fields, towards that plain. And those are so strangely less seeable than the storm in the height of heaven itself. I, I agree. I think I, I don't know what you found uh, so interesting about the word vanished. I agree with you that it is. For me, one of the reasons that I like it is that it it echoes vanquished, mm. pelted waters on the vanquished plain. Mm. And but of course, it's not vanquished. It's just vanished from us. Your attention to the, the visual here, it seems to me, is absolutely apt. Um Again and again, what the poem seems to be implying is we can't really see it. And the less we can see it, the less we can find our way in the world. And the more water there is, you know, it goes from serene, that mist up high. It goes from serene to columns on column, column on column that comes drenching down. And as we move our eyes from up to down, we go from serene mist and dew down to bleary eyes uh, and then to the drenching rain. Um, We are subject to what should be the gentle rain from heaven that is twice blessed. um, But in fact, it is constantly oppressive. This is a powerful story. Mm -hmm. It's about nature. It is at least about humanity in nature it is not oh good let's see how pretty the clouds and the fields are which is why perhaps since we never do live just in the fields but in fact live in the world that humanity inhabits and shapes that's perhaps why even with so simple a poem as this there is always more to say And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.